0: Hello, Anza Valley. I'm here today with Roy, and we're going to have a talk about botany, and I would love for you guys to learn something new today. Roy, what are you be presenting today?
1: All right, thank you, Erin. I'm here today to talk about the great achievements of America's greatest plant breeder, that being Luther Burbank, who was born in 1849 and lived until 1926. And so um, many people are already familiar with the Burbank potato which was discovered by Luther Burbank as far back as 1873. And so he sold that potato to uh, someone named Mr. Gregory in Massachusetts for $150, and that money enabled him to come out to California in 1875 to join his half-brothers living in the Santa Rosa area. So I would like to point out that Luther Burbank was born and raised in Massachusetts, and uh, early on he had uh, a keen observational ability. He noticed uh, some of the elm trees growing around his home property in Massachusetts appear to be hybrids of the native species. And uh, in addition to this, uh, he was growing the, the potato variety called early rose, so that was uh, something that was available in his time, and he noticed something unusual, and that is there was a seed ball on one of the plants in his garden. So uh, he carefully watched it uh, throughout the season, and then uh, it turns out that that seed ball towards uh, the harvest season just disappeared, and with an almost panicky uh, mentality, he searched for it and couldn't find it. And he went and looked for it again later and did find it. It had been moved a few feet away from the original plant. So he uh, retrieved it and carefully picked out the 23 seeds that were inside. And the following season, those were planted. And uh, again, with uh, careful precision, he watched the plants grow. And uh, at the end of that season, he, had, um, he noticed there was a variation in, in the uh, resultant potatoes. So two of the 23 potato plants turned out to be far superior than all the others. Some of the others were red-skinned, some were white-skinned or you know brown-skinned with white flesh. And uh, the two good ones were, uh, were white, uh, white potatoes inside, brown-skinned, white potatoes on the inside. So of those two, he um, later selected one, which uh, is the one that he sold to Mr. Gregory and uh, he had supplied him with uh, a few spuds to trial in his garden. And uh, the following year, that being, I, I believe, uh, 1875, he, uh, mis- he being Mr. Gregory was very pleased with the uh, results of the new potato. It was far superior to the uh, variety called Early Rose itself, uh, being a seedling of a, a potato variety called Early Goodrich. So um, Luther Burbank was hoping to... Uh, make about $500 on the sale of that potato, but uh, Mr. Gregory pointed out that new potato varieties were going to come along uh, soon and that uh, he was not going to be able to recoup uh, his investment if he had paid more than that. So anyway, um, Luther sold the rights of that potato. It was named the Burbank Seedling, by the way, by Mr. Gregory, and um, Luther used that money Uh, later in 1875 to travel with California. He had uh, had heard glowing reports of uh, the Santa Rosa area, and he was very interested in moving out there to see uh, for himself uh, the wonders of California. So um, when he got to California, he began work as a carpenter, and uh, on the side he also collected seeds of native plants For various firms to sell uh, around the world. And then um, his mother later bought four acres in Santa Rosa on the corner of Santa Rosa Avenue and Tupper Street. And so uh, that gave him an opportunity to start a nursery. Uh, I believe that nursery began around 1877. So uh, he had done some uh, market, gardening or farming in Massachusetts and he had experience uh, in the agricultural area. So he began selling uh, various trees like prune trees and I believe olives and and some others that uh, were in demand at the time. Uh, But what he really wanted to do, his life's passion, was to uh, develop new varieties of plants. And this was inspired largely by his reading of Darwin's books, especially on the origin of species. So he was uh, very interested in, in doing this for his work. He had a uh, a full-fledged nursery going, and by the year, um, I believe around 1884, he was starting to uh, look more towards spending more of his time uh, developing new kinds of plants. So uh, that's what he did. Even before then, he was already working on things, but uh, as far as his full-time occupation is concerned, he uh, began uh, very seriously around 1884, 1885 to develop uh, new kinds of plants, uh, which was uh, what he was interested in, interested in doing primarily. So so a few of those, what I'd like to talk about today in addition to is potato. Um, and by the way, the, the potato today known as the Russet Burbank is believed to be a sport. In other words, a somatic mutation that uh, was found on uh, someone's plant uh, a long time ago. It's not the original. I do have the original Burbank potato. Um, I, I received uh, spuds from a facility in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, the potato uh, germplasm repository, the gene uh, bank, if you will, for the, uh, the National Clonal Germplasm Repository System. And uh, as far as that goes, I also have the early rose potato. So I'm very pleased to um, be growing both varieties, but I wanted to point out that the potato known today, the common baking potato known as the russet Burbank, is not the original, but is a derivative of the original, and it's still popular too, by the way. And I should further point out that um, the potato that was grown in that part of California uh, at the time was known as bodega red. So a, a red-skinned, a dark red-skinned or brownish-red-skinned potato known as bodega red was the primary potato grown in California at that time until the Burbank uh, potato arrived. He was allowed to take 10 potatoes with him. That was part of the deal with Mr. Gregory. And so thus began the uh, the major potato growing uh, era of California in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys. So uh, moving along to, uh, let's see. I w- would also like to cover today some, uh, some of his, his Primary accomplishments including his spineless cactus hybrids, I'd like to cover his his plums, I'd like to cover his shasta daisy, his thornless blackberry, his white blackberry and possibly some other brambles. Um, We can start I suppose with the the spineless cactus. Um, He considered his work on the spineless cactus varieties that he developed to be his primary significant contribution in life. He saw the, uh, the area, of like uh, what was uh, the arid area around the area of Los Angeles, for example, at that time uh, as being particularly suitable for the cultivation of the cactus uh, variety or species known as Opuntia ficus, indica, and various hybrids uh, with other cactus varieties used for fruit and forage. So he began work in the uh, 1890s on his uh, his cactus hybrids. I should quickly point out that he had done other work in, in plant breeding on other species, uh, other uh, crop plants like plums and his blackberries before then, but because he considered his spineless cactus uh, work to be his, his life's most important, I think I'll just talk about that, and that's in fact the area which I've done a lot of research in myself in recovering his his spineless cactus varieties. So, in fact, he claimed in his 1918 catalog to have developed some 600 varieties of spineless cactuses. And so he had uh, started with uh, various species that were known to be good for fruit, and there were professors in different areas, like in the Mediterranean area, down in Mexico, uh, who had sent him some, uh, some starts of plants that they found in those regions. Uh, David Fairchild sent him some material also, so uh, he used uh, that starting material to develop his uh, cactus varieties, which uh, were arguably spineless. And uh, the two primary things he wanted to do was introduce the cactus for its fruit and for its forage. Uh, The fruit for primarily for human consumption, the forage primarily for livestock, and He had great success in doing this and developing the cactus varieties. Uh, I've had the good fortune of finding all of his name varieties and I'm sure there are more out there and that's part of the reason I'm uh, pleased to do this interview is to encourage others out there to look for uh, spineless cactus varieties of the Opuntia ficus indica uh, type that may still be around, but haven't been found yet. So,
0: Is there anything that someone who wouldn't be a botanist might be able to recognize those kind of cactus fruits that would help?
1: Uh, absolutely. Uh, one does not need to have multiple degrees in botany to, uh, to use their powers of observation. Just by looking around, you'll notice that some of the cactus fruits will ripen orange, and other areas, uh, other varieties will ripen yellow and still others will ripen red. So just as simple as uh, knowing your colors would be enough to be able to pick off uh, unusual varieties of uh, cactuses, perhaps. And so that's what I've done, too, just driving around. When I did my cactus research was just driving around looking for things that I did not recognize that looked different, uh, cactus pad shapes, uh, cactus fruit colors. Uh, so, of course, in the fall, uh, actually starting a late summer into fall is a good time to look for cactus varieties based on the type of fruit they will produce as, uh, as they are ripe at that time. So so um, I've had great success with this. Uh, Burbank had great success in developing his cactus varieties. Um, he sold one cactus pad. The technical term by the way is cladoed, uh, but for the common usage, I usually just use the term pad though it's also known as a leaf, uh, a slab, etc. He sold one of those of one of his new hybrid varieties in 1907, and that's pronounced 1907 for some folks, uh, for the sum of $1,000 to a Mr. uh, John Rutland of Australia, and that included the rights of distribution in the Southern Hemisphere so uh, he used, in fact, the, uh, the proceeds from that single sale, that single pad, to uh, build a new house. He paid for most of his new house, a two-story house, which was across uh, Tupper Street from his uh, older house, which was uh, there since, I think, the late uh, 1880s or so. In so,
0: 1907, $1,000 was a lot of money.
1: That's right. People forget that uh, the value of our money has um, greatly diminished especially since uh, 1913 and the the implementation of the Federal Reserve. In fact, if you go to the CPI Inflation Calculator website, it only goes back to 1913 showing the inflation. Uh, So $1,000 in 1913 has the purchasing power today of over $24,000 in today's money. So... uh, one can imagine that it was worth even more of that going back to 1907, and uh, you know houses in 1970, for example, could be purchased for around 12,000 uh, to 16,000 for a house. Uh, nowadays, it may be hard to find a car for that price.
0: <laughs> well, even a tiny house is thirty thousand dollars or more. So. Right. So. Um,
1: So uh, he built a two-story house with the the proceeds of the uh, the sale of that cactus. And um, he did fairly well with that. Now, later on, something called the Luther Burbank Company was set up uh, where he sort of uh, gave them the uh, responsibility of marketing his cactuses. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, off-type cactuses were sold as genuine Burbank varieties. And the company did not last. It got a bad reputation and smeared his name as well. So I believe it only lasted from around 1912 to 1916 uh, or so, and then uh, went belly up. But uh, um, please report that his cactus varieties are still out there. In some cases, I've only found one uh, particular example of, uh, of his named cactus varieties. But uh, I, I did have the good fortune of finding uh, his cactus plants. Now, I should also point out that I had... Um, had been visiting the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa as far back as late 1987. Uh, at that time the, uh, the old cedar tree, the Lebanese cedar tree, was still standing. And then on subsequent visits, uh, beginning uh, on a trip in 1990 until uh, much later, about 15 years later, 2005 or so, I would stop in periodically when I was in the Northern California area and I would ask if anyone was looking for the uh, lost cactus varieties and the answer was always that they're extinct and it's not true Uh, unfortunately um, it's bad information his cactus varieties and for that matter his other hybrids are also still around I truly believe and uh, I've had uh, quite a bit of success in finding his plums for example so now on my 1990 trip for example um, The horticultural historian at the Luther Burbank Burbank Home and Gardens name was Bob Hornback, and he kindly uh, spent a lot of time explaining things to me and showed me around and he had done some preliminary work himself trying to ID the spineless cactus varieties that were still uh, around on the property in Santa Rosa. So uh, we also made a trip out to the Yaakayama Indian Reservation and uh, looked around over there Various plants that were uh, being grown at their nursery. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm definitely grateful to to Bob for uh, taking the time then, um, for showing me around and uh, inspiring me to uh, to be on the lookout for Burbank varieties. So uh, that's for sort of like a side note. And I should also point out that um, the continuity of the the homestead in Santa Rosa was maintained. Uh, largely because Luther Burbank's second wife lived until 1977, so uh, she was there on the grounds uh, until a fairly uh, recent date, and so that, I think, had, uh, had helped a lot in uh, maintaining his legacy. And also, he had sold uh, the rights to his plants uh, to Stark Brothers Nursery of Missouri, so um, they came out uh, this way uh, after his death in 1926 and took stock of what he had in his orchard uh, especially uh, in uh, his second place in sebastopol so that's something else i'd like to point out about luther burbank because he had two main places where he did his experiments he had the uh, the home place in uh, santa rosa which is still there it's uh i believe it's a state historical uh landmark of some kind uh, but it is still there and then there was his other place uh, he had a bought a farm in 1885 Called Gold Ridge Farm in Sebastopol, about uh, eight miles away. So, and that's where uh, a large number of his experiments were carried out as well. So that will uh, hopefully give the listener some idea of uh, the places where he did his work. So, yeah, as far as the cactuses go, I believe I've I've touched on most of it. Uh, as far as uh, the forage varieties, they were, he was hoping that the deserts could be planted with cactus and that uh, cattle could be fed with them, especially the tender pads, usually it's the tender pads that are harvested. Um, the new growth, the, the, the new flush of growth is what uh, was recommended for, uh, for livestock feed. Uh, horses are said not to care for it that much, the cattle seem to like it. Um, in fact, the milk, of feeding milk cows, the cactuses would be better than what the feed was being given to them at that time. But as it turned out, um, alfalfa edged out cactus and then of course the, uh, the the scandal, if you will, with the Luther Burbank Company um, sort of put an end uh, to the, the cactus bubble, this country's cactus bubble, uh, as far as that goes. So, um,
0: Which seems too bad here in the desert because it seems like you would have had plenty of space and, and ability to grow cactus.
1: Well, Right, but it turns out that the, uh, the the primary species of cactus he was using actually do need a little more water, and the best specimens I've found have been near the coast, so they uh, they can handle dry, but they seem to prefer uh, look best with the maritime influence. So uh, this is not, and this is not something that would probably be doable in a high desert area. Just uh, some of his cactus varieties were. Uh, Advertise for their cold tolerance, but the majority uh, would not be uh, suitable for for example the, the Mojave Desert for example
0: um, Or even up here where it freezes. If right. You it freeze it might right, them.
1: Right, they will suffer damage from uh, very cold nights, so um, But I eat cactus on a weekly basis. Uh, I like it a lot uh, the way the Mexicans prepare it uh, saute pieces of cactus them into squares and uh, in a pan, throw in some eggs, scramble some eggs and it's very good. Uh, it tastes good. I like it. I usually add some uh, Lowry seasoning salt uh, to the, uh, the cactus as it's cooking and then throw in the eggs and salt it again uh, with, and add pepper too, of course, uh, before eating it. So uh, I like it a lot. Uh, it's nutritious. I've been told uh, there are medicinal benefits of the cactus. I consume that way, especially for those with uh, blood sugar issues, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, I knew someone who had taken uh, the nopal pill because his doctor told him his blood sugar level was too high, so he took the pill, and actually brought his uh, blood sugar level under control. So, uh, and there are a number of anecdotal uh, stories about uh, how the cactus can be used medicinally, but it also is it's uh, it's It's, good. It's tasty. I like it it, um,
0: in tacos and slices. Right, it's wonderful.
1: It has a uh, a lemon like. Flavor has a lemony taste. It varies. Uh, there are differences in uh, depending on which varieties you use uh, as, a, as a vegetable. But uh, basically, it has a lemon-like flavor to it. So, and uh, initially, when you when you slice it up, it's edible. Also, by the way, I should point out, uh, raw or cooked. So you don't have to cook this one. It does have a, a slime to it, which is disagreeable uh, to some people. Something I guess suppose akin to okra, but. Um, I've also been told that the slime is where uh, most of the nutrients are so it's just it one of the seems to be that way
0: a lot like the the skin or the you know it seems to be that fruits well, tend to have a right. lot of right for spiders. an example of
1: apples for example that's where you find the highest percentage of quercetin and which is uh, very healthy for you so um, so yes uh, yeah definitely uh, there's some benefit uh, a lot of benefit in uh, consuming um, cactus as far as the nutrition goes, I had some old numbers from the 1907 catalog where an analysis was done on the percentage of ash and, and you know, crude protein. But I, I I really need to check uh, some modern studies and see uh, which vitamins, particularly, I would imagine vitamin C would figure prominently in the constitution of cactus as a vegetable and uh, some others. So um, so yeah, so uh, you know the cactus. Uh, it's, uh I like it a lot my, my work my searching for the uh, lost varieties has tapered off um, so I do believe there are more out there probably uh, probably a lot more but uh, hidden away on, on uh, private ranches private property and hard to find so so I do hope uh, people out there listening will keep their eyes open and just uh, have that awareness that uh, the cactuses are there uh, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of benefit of having a plant uh, growing on your property, for example, even for like earthquake survival, earthquake preparedness. Just having that survival plant would be a great thing.
0: Knowing you have something edible that grows no Knowing you have something
1: in. edible, right now, I've been told the mature pads are. Considered like a famine food, but it's a tender pads. And this is the part you want to pick something that's freshly shooting. Uh, they begin to shoot in my area around March, so you want to pick something that's about the size of the palm of your hand, maybe a little bit larger, and that's what you want to
0: use. So uh, the larger, larger pads are? Are they? Are they still edible, or just not as flavorful? You, it's
1: more about the age. You want it can be a large pad that is just freshly developed. So you want something that's tender. You want something that's that's tender, that's a fresh. Uh, fresh growth. Uh, a pad that's already like uh, fully formed and is starting to toughen up, the skin gets tougher, and there's the uh, 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 insides are just too tough. It would be probably like chewing on cardboard. It's not something you would enjoy doing. So, you want to pick something that's uh, freshly emerging, a, a new pad. Uh, in Spanish, by the it's penca, is the Spanish term for the, uh, the pad, and, and uh, the fruit is known as a tuna. This will also help uh, our listeners uh, if they're going to Mexican markets, for example, asking about the fruit. And in fact, uh, I was advised myself to uh, to meet some uh, Oaxacan people and ask them how they prepare uh, certain cactus fruits, uh, just to uh, get a better understanding of what can be done with uh,
0: with the fruits. So,
1: so yeah. Um, anyway, I guess that's about. Uh,
0: that's it for the, for the
1: cactus Well, portion. that's about it. The, his, catalog, his first cactus catalog, so let's, let's, let's retrace the steps here a little bit. So he began his work in about, I think, the mid-1890s, and his first cactus catalog was um, published in 1907, and his last one, last cactus varieties, were offered in 1925. So uh, that's sort of like the, uh, the range right there uh, of the years where uh, they were available and I think that's about it as far as the cactus. If I think of some other things later, I'll come back to it. But uh, maybe we can switch to some his plums or something like that. Okay. Uh, um,
0: so if listeners out there do are interested in the, in the spineless cactus and Luther Burbank, or if you have any information or have seen an odd cactus, why don't you go ahead and get a hold of Roy? Do they have an e- you have an email they can reach you at?
1: I do. Yeah, it's my name. It's R.H. Wiersma. That's R.H.W.I.E r s m a at aol.com
0: okay and we'd love to hear from you guys too here at programming if you're interested in talking about with us about the cactus or local plants Um, and we will see you on the next episode with roy